Welcome to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Bolden Networks is unlocking the power of an interconnected future by bringing you insights in transport from around the globe. I'm Ian Montgomery of Label Sessions, and today Chris Bichette of Bolden and myself are talking to Chris Brumlett about some really rather low-tech transport solutions. Bicycles. Chris is passionate about sustainable and inclusive mobility, not to mention Dutch bike culture, as the International Relations Manager at the Dutch Cycling Embassy. Let's face it, when we think of cycling cities, we think of places in the Netherlands. But Amsterdam or Utrecht didn't always exist with cycling at their heart. They've undergone a massive transformation over the last few decades. And the likes of Chris from the Dutch Cycling Embassy are passionate about sharing the knowledge and experience from the Netherlands to cities all around the world. Excited that we have Chris Brentlett here today from the uh, Dutch Cycling Embassy, who is uh, going to tell us all about, uh, I, I suspect, um, well, cycling, of course, but I suspect a lot of cultural differences and how we can capture some of that magic. I'm also very excited to speak with somebody and meet somebody who every time I go into LinkedIn and I see a post, I go, what did I post? Oh, no, that's Chris Bruntlett, not Burchette. Okay. Chris, lovely to meet you. Um, can you... Uh, Take a few moments to tell us about yourself and how you uh, how you ended up abandoning us here in Canada for the greater wonders of of the Netherlands. Of course, yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Story is a, a fairly unlikely one, and every time I tell it, I'm like, that really happened. Um, as as now, yeah, a five year resident of the Netherlands, uh, it was never part of the plan when I graduated from architecture school at uh, Ryerson University in Toronto in 2003. Um, at the time I was working as a residential architect, uh, I moved out to Vancouver, uh, for the West coast dream of, of living, uh, working in, uh, that climate and, uh, got sucked into an existential conversation that that city was having around cycling infrastructure. I myself just happened to ride a bike to the office every day. Uh, but, uh, you know, got involved in cycling advocacy, uh, started ended up you know writing articles uh doing social media photo blogging producing videos uh, on the topic and one thing led to another we came to the netherlands my wife melissa and i in 2019 uh, 2016 sorry uh to write some blog posts and and that became our first book building the cycling city the dutch blueprint for urban vitality uh, and that caught the attention of the dutch cycling embassy who made me a job offer i couldn't refuse so uh, yeah, for the last uh, almost five years now, I've been working as the international relations manager for the Dutch Cycling Embassy, uh, and we work with cities around the world to help them yeah, learn from the Netherlands as a cycling nation and help them develop their infrastructure, their policy, their culture to hopefully yeah, enjoy the successes and all the benefits that come with getting more people cycling in their city. You're clearly a cycling advocate. But from what I understand, most of the Dutch wouldn't describe themselves as that. Many don't even describe themselves as cyclists. Exactly. And, and many Dutch people don't even think about cycling as, uh, you know, a uh, anything more than a tool in their daily lives, like a toothbrush or a vacuum cleaner. They certainly don't identify uh, as cyclists. They don't, it's not part of their lifestyle or their they don't have clothing with bikes on it or, or spend their evenings and weekends advocating to get more people cycling because cycling over the past 50 years or so with the development of the infrastructure 
cycling has become so normalized, so mundane, so unremarkable uh, that most people here don't think about it at all. They don't recognize, you know, the policy, the infrastructure decisions that went into uh, creating those conditions. Uh, they don't recognize the historical uh, uh, contributions uh, that occurred in the 70s and 80s to create this uh, this uh, this cycling nation. Um, and they're certainly not aware of it or, or spend a lot of time thinking about it. We often talk about, you know, they have their their sewage systems, their electricity systems, their water management systems, the cycling infrastructure system. They don't spend any time reflecting on these various infrastructures and investments. Uh, they just enjoy the benefits of them every day in their daily lives without really being aware of it. So that's a really important point. Uh, so cycling is pervasive throughout the Netherlands right now, but it wasn't always that way. In, in in North America, we point to old cultural differences. Oh, here's here's why it's different there. But our cities weren't built around car required suburbia. weren't always built that way. Just like the Dutch, it wasn't always a cycling culture. That was a lo a, a long change over time. No, exactly. And and once you post anything about the Netherlands and cycling on social media, you get the same bad fate. Uh, arguments about why that would never work in in their specific context the, yeah that cities were built before the car yeah but it's flat yeah but the weather yeah but yeah but yeah but uh and it's not until you unpack those uh those excuses uh before you actually expose them for what they are is is generally coming from people who don't want any change uh and are reverse engineering an excuse to oppose that change but when we talk about the history of the Netherlands, we have to identify this very important period in the 1970s after 20 years of building everything uh, in this country around the car. You know, they were like everywhere else. The, they saw the automobile as their future means of mobility that everybody would get everywhere by car. They were demolishing their buildings, widening their streets, filling in their canals for motorways and parkings for the car. Uh, that they suddenly, there was this kind of light bulb moment in the in the mid nineteen seventies about the damage it was doing to their health, to their happiness, to the livability of their cities. Um, and paired with an oil crisis, and in around that time, that six weeks of uh, embargo from the oil producing nations, uh, there was a, this bottom up grassroots movement. Uh, that saw what was happening in their cities, but also a recognition at the political level that the future had to look differently, that a one-sided car-based transportation system was going to be very fragile and susceptible to uh, global events as we, we saw during the pandemic. And so um, this created this inflection point, this tipping point uh, away from a car-dominated society, but it was never uh, a given and it was never, uh, it wasn't, that the Dutch were always this cycling nation and always going to be the cycling nation. It was a very deliberate response to historic and political circumstances in and around that time and set them on this kind of 50-year path uh, that has set them on this different trajectory from everywhere else in the world. But it doesn't mean that other cities can't learn from this process and, and certainly can't be inspired by the process. It's going to be a bit more difficult because they'd gone 50 years further down the car-dependent path uh, but at some point, they have to recognize the same for the same reasons for our health, our happiness, the livability of our cities, uh, 
the access uh, of everybody to be able to get about their daily needs without needing this $12,000 a year machine uh, that we, uh, for all those reasons uh, that we know, uh, we have to set about giving people alternative choices in their day-to-day mobility. I want to I want to talk about what you were referring to earlier about the you know, why we can't do this here and 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 how we communicate to those people. But uh, what your role at the cycling embassy is is your role advocacy within the Netherlands? Are you or are you going to help us back home and around the world uh, export some of those some of those good. Uh, Dutch practices. What, what's what's your role in the embassy, or what is the role of the embassy? The Dutch Cycling Embassy is one hundred percent internationally uh, focused. Uh, so we have a sister organization, the Fietsersbond, the Cyclists Union, which has been around much longer than us. That is solely focused on improving and advocating for better conditions within the Netherlands. Uh, we are uh, founded and financed, continue to be financed by the Dutch Ministry of Infrastructure. Uh, as a form of bicycle diplomacy, if you will, we're, we exist to share knowledge, to share expertise, to share best practices with other cities, uh, but also a, a form of economic development because we promote the products and services uh, of Dutch organizations uh, and what is a very, uh, well, a, a nascent but growing bicycle sector here. Uh, so we're the Dutch government has recognized cycling, its importance as an export product. Uh, and its potential and is now investing in the Dutch Cycling Embassy to hopefully, uh, well, help other cities uh, become more bicycle friendly uh, at a sense of responsibility, but also uh, hopefully create new economic opportunities for uh, Dutch consultancies, engineers, manufacturers, uh, and so on, because they've been all doing this for, yeah, 50 plus years. They've learned some lessons along the way, uh, and they're now perhaps in this this position to hopefully uh, provide some guidance and oversight and, and learnings to other cities that want to also go down this path. So we might see you back sometime soon, perhaps uh, on a mission uh, as part of your your role there. Might see you come and visit Canada and and t- tell us uh, some of the good things going on. Yeah, we've in in my five years with the Dutch Cycling Embassy, we've done uh, workshops in Kitchener, in Sarnia, in. Mississauga. Um, so we are actively working in in uh, several parts of Canada, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's not just the usual suspects now. You know, it's not just the Vancouver and Torontos that are improving their cycling networks. It's also, as I said, Mississauga, Sarnia, uh, Kitchener, etc. They they also see the urgency and the importance of uh, of, of doing this because. With the ultimate recognition that you can never build enough space for cars, you can never build enough lanes, you can never build enough parking, uh, and eventually you have to, uh, well, throw a, a, a spanner in that vicious cycle of, of car dependency and try to reverse it with this uh, virtuous circle of walking, cycling, and public transportation and making them work in a more synergistically way. That's another excellent point. Manhattan. How are you going to put more streets in Manhattan to accommodate more cars? There is a there is an overall upper cap to accommodating cars in in a place. So, um, getting back to our, our discussion about culture and about communicating, uh, you you're a you're a cycling advocate. 
So you are going to run into knee-jerk reactions, particularly in different cultures. I think you'll be well-received in the Netherlands, but say in North America, you'll get a knee-jerk reaction from the, the coal-rolling, you know, car-loving, don't-take-my-car-away-freedom fighters that absolutely steadfastly refuse to consider psycho. Um, I, some of them are my dearest friends. And, and so we have, we have this debate, but I think it's important to, to be able to communicate, to talk about this, to not have knee jerk reactions and just he who yells the loudest wins. There's different levels of communication for different groups. How, how do you, how do you go about that? Because I'm sure you get instant reaction by some groups, instant rejection. I think it starts with the recognition that you aren't going to necessarily win everybody over, nor do you need to. You know, we don't need a hundred percent consensus on every single change that we make to the cities because that is impossible, and it, it is uh, it leads to the status quo being uh, what it is for such a long period of time. But um, there are ways to engage with uh, cynics and 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 opponents um, as long as they're coming to you in in good faith and and are willing to have a fact-based conversation uh, and are willing to consider alternative viewpoints and the alternative viewpoints are quite simple it's not everybody can uh, has the physical and financial means to own and operate a car um, every single person that chooses another means of transportation foot bicycle or public transport is one less car in front of you sitting in traffic uh, and there is a way to go about this in a really kind of um, mutually beneficial way uh, where the drivers uh, also benefit from getting more people out of their cars. And, and I think this is something the Netherlands demonstrates quite beautifully is there's very little congestion in most Dutch cities because uh, of the provision of choice, because people can choose space efficient means of transport for short journeys. It frees up the precious road space for people who still want to drive and need to drive. And and uh, it's not this kind of black and white war on cars, uh, the cyclists win and the drivers lose way that, uh, well, some people try to frame it. The media certainly tries to frame it. And, uh, and so trying to have that conversation is not easy. Um, the other thing I think we, we also try to do is just to have a values-based discussion and not uh, end on the mode of transportation on the conclusion and say, we want to get more people cycling, but asking them, well, what do you want from your streets and from your community? Do you agree that children deserve uh, to get to school safely and independently? Do you agree that we want economically vibrant, uh, socially coherent uh, places? Do we all share these values of a sustainable, resilient, uh, 21st century city and if we can agree uh, on some common vision of the future then we can uh, debate on how to get there but uh, in our mind you know uh, changing our mobility patterns is one way that we can uh, accomplish a lot of these goals uh, and bring along a lot of people that maybe have some cultural baggage when it comes to uh, the bicycle they may think of it as kind of eco-friendly warriors or uh, woke uh, <laughs> piece. I don't know, uh, but but uh, the bicycle is is cultural baggage with it. Uh, so we often uh, just set it aside and have 
a conversation about uh, yeah what we want our communities to look like and then we can discuss how how exactly we get there you mentioned cost and that's a, a big factor it, you know in in some of my debates i have a brother who lives in alberta and so he takes a certain side and i take a certain side and by the way i am not transit advocate. I am not an environmentalist. I am not. But in the course of my work and my life, I see things that make sense. And I've been to Amsterdam a number of times. I've got my my Amsterdam mug here. I've been to the Netherlands all around. I, I love the way they go about things there. I love the options, the choice. So it just makes sense to me. But um, so in in the debates between me and my brother, cost is one. How much do you think it costs to support that cyclist for the three kilometer ride versus your trip, one person in a car and how many trips by car are taken by one person in the car? So the cost is a, is a, an approach, but, uh, the, the other one you, you mentioned, um, if things go well with transit, that makes your driving experience better. Ultimately, it makes it better for the drivers as well. So, um, I think we need to we need to strategize to find the language that can we can't convert everybody like you say, but can win some hearts and minds over because I think it's just common sense for common sense good. So, uh, my time in the Netherlands, I'm I'm astounded by the transit there. I I love it, but I'll let you speak to the the genius there. So. The policies in the 70s then, what do you think were the main things that started to turn a culture around? Because if we're going to adopt some of this in North America, it's going to be a long-term project. What are the key changes we need to introduce? Well, it's going to be a long-term project, but I would argue it's not going to be as long as the Netherlands because you can do it in a much more informed and accelerated way. Um, when we talk about this period of 50 years between the inflection point and the present day, um, we tend to break it down into two halves. The first half being about a 25-year period where the Dutch didn't know what the heck to do. They, there was no how-to manual. There was no guidebook. There was no blueprint to building a cycling city. Um, it, it just Exactly. They were literally throwing stuff down on the ground and seeing what what stick, what stuck, and what what didn't, and, and what 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 killed people less? <laughs> well, uh, what what people used in terms of infrastructure, and and uh, you know, it's uh, they obviously experimented with physical segregation versus painted bike lanes, uh, various elements of traffic calming to filter out through car traffic or reduce speeds, uh, and recirculate traffic uh, away from residential areas. Uh, the development of a living street, a neighborhood street where children could play on through uh, design elements. You know, these were all uh, the the trial and error, uh, all done during this trial and error period. And there were a lot of mistakes made along the way. There were a lot of cycle paths, demonstration projects that were abandoned or declared failures. Uh, and it's really not until, uh, yeah, halfway through this 50-year period in the mid-1990s where the the successes the, were codified in national legislation in um, uh, a road safety and a street design policy uh, and a design manual 
that was passed down to every municipality in the, in the country. Uh, and that's when you see things really accelerate and really take off. And um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, as we say, you can skip the error part now with the trial and error process, go straight to the stuff that works. Uh, and this is the privilege that we have as the Dutch Cycling Embassy is now we know how to design a high quality cycling network, how to design a high quality cycling path or street or intersection or bike parking facility. Uh, we have the design elements, the language, the skills uh, that we need to teach other places how to get there uh, and hopefully go about this uh, with half of the time, uh, provided they have the same vision and urgency uh, to get to the final destination, which is, uh, as, we, as we were saying, cities that work better for everybody, whether you get on a bike or not. But there are some cultural factors in there that I, I would I would say... I would guess extend beyond just cycling. Um, we were speaking earlier about uh, Ian was walking on a cycling path and misbehaving as a pedestrian and got run into by a bicycle. And the cyclist, I guess, got up and dusted themselves off and dressed him down for getting in the way. And I think it's worse the cyclist didn't actually even come off the bike. <laughs> Dutch bikes are enormous. Yeah. So. Yeah, but but you got dressed down. There's a sort of a self policing aspect to it, where the Dutch are not shy about telling somebody else what they think about them wandering into their path. Uh, similarly, I, and I use this example all the time of the civility of the Dutch, where quite often cycling infrastructures don't cross car traffic at all, but sometimes they do, and you come to an intersection where it's green light for cars this way. And then it's green light in the perpendicular direction this way. And then it's all cyclists go. And everybody goes in every direction at the same time. And they interlace and interweave. And nobody runs into each other. And in North America, that would be utter chaos. But the Dutch make it work. It's, it's, it's governed by a, a policy of you're all adults. Sort yourselves out. And, and today, in this day and age, I don't see that working very well here. Well, we always, I, I think it's, it, it, what you've said is absolutely true, but I think it's important to acknowledge that that, uh, where the Dutch are today, again, is a product of 50 years of road culture that's shaped around the infrastructure uh, and building a certain degree of, of trust and mutual understanding amongst the various road users. And we wouldn't suggest that a, a, a car-dominated city in Texas or or Alberta uh, skip straight to assuming that that type of infrastructure will work. You, you have to take these baby steps to build that shared understanding and, and trust. And um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, one of the really interesting things about the Netherlands is how few stop signs and traffic lights there are. Uh, it's just assumed that everybody's going to figure out most intersections through that kind of negotiation of eye contact and uh, hand gestures and, and body language. Uh, but again, that, that certainly wouldn't happen, wouldn't have happened 50 years ago. That's, uh, almost a language that everybody now speaks as that has developed over the years. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I think it's an important point, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's the end goal. It, it's, you know, where you could be, uh, decades from now, culture changes and, and changes very quickly under specific circumstances. Uh, if we shape the infrastructure to get the desired outcome. And I think that's one thing that Dutch engineers are masters of is really designing for the behavior that they want uh, and then 
you know, watching the culture develop around uh, that infrastructure as if it was the most normal thing in the world, but it's really shaped by um, the traffic engineers, which are almost acting like psychologists in a way, anticipating and shaping the the expected behavior on on the streets in a given city. And that's another big difference. You you referred to the traffic lights and the lack of lights, but where there are lights, they make really good sense. If I, I sometimes think if we model ourselves after the Dutch and, and adjusted our traffic signals the same way, we'd instantly get 20% more efficiency on the roads because their lights are designed to know when somebody is at the intersection, but also to optimize things so that if these people are going this way, there's no reason why you can't walk on the other side across the street. So they coordinate the lights. So they do use technology to make to maximize the efficiency of those intersections. No, and I think this is a tremendous, tremendously important point, is we're often asked by international visitors to the Netherlands, where do the Dutch engineers find all this extra space for walking and cycling and trams and buses? And the answer is they actually take it away from the cars because they understand that uh, the capacity of a road is not dependent on how many lanes it is, it's all dependent on the design of the intersection. If you time your traffic lights in a dynamic uh, and efficient way, or if you utilize a roundabout instead of a, a traditional signalized intersection, you can actually move more cars on a two-lane street than you can on a four-lane street uh, simply by optimizing that flow through the design of the intersection. And then that suddenly gives you all this additional space uh, for people on foot or bicycle or public transportation. So it's just using the space we have in more intelligent and efficient ways. And it opens up all these opportunities to find yeah, new space for other modes of transportation as well. I was just going to ask, so why aren't the Dutch exporting this genius? But of course, it strikes me now that they've created an embassy to do exactly that. Um, so is, is there, is there, do you have a package? Do you have, you know, I think of uh, my hometown, is there something I should be pushing in front of people? Because, um, we're we're trying to optimize, I, I would, or make more efficient cycling around uh, our, our city, and make it safer. But and and my local councillor is a strong cycling advocate, but I feel that the perception here of the advocates is any bike lane is a good bike lane, and I absolutely do not believe that to be true. I was just watching a YouTube video about a bike lane that was built between three lanes on one side, two on the other in a 50 mile an hour zone. And there's a cycling lane right up the middle of it. So I abjectly reject that any cycling, cycling lane is a good lane. So, but is there, how do you go about it? Is there a package that people can look and see here are the most efficient ways? Is it, do we have to import Dutch people to come and work in our in our city infrastructure. No, that's a it's a good question, and you know it starts with just uh, our online presence. You know we have a really detailed website, uh, social media channels, YouTube channel where we're regularly publishing content on best practice on all of these topics and just sharing, yeah, what what Dutch cities are currently doing in terms of addressing their own challenges, the innovations that are happening, the best the principles and, and best practices that. Of design, but um, when we're working with a new city, you know, it really it starts with an approach. Uh, they come to us with a, a specific ask, 
uh, and uh, all of the activities that we do with that city are tailor-made. So there is no kind of menu of, of services that we offer, but it's really coming up with a, a scheme that will ensure long-term success. And it's often three-pronged. Uh, we have to do something uh, in terms of public diplomacy, in terms of engaging with the community, in terms of getting them excited and enthused about this topic and bringing them along for the discussion. Uh, it's about creating political capital. And a lot of times that does involve decision makers and elected officials to the Netherlands for a study visit. Uh, it is, you know, as you can imagine, quite an expense, but it's something that a lot of cities do. Uh, to get them informed and inspired. And, and as you've said yourself, you know, seeing is believing. And once you see how a city in the Netherlands works, and it may not be the city center of Amsterdam, but Eindhoven or Rotterdam or Utrecht, which have been more recent developments and have more modern bones and might be more relatable to uh, a North American city, it's very hard to walk away from that and not be uh, committed and, and convinced that this is possible in your own city. Uh, and then the third prong we, we spend a lot of time focusing on is just the technical knowledge. And oftentimes that involves bringing in the Dutch expertise to that city, sitting down with the local planners and engineers and uh, other consultants uh, and working on the, the technical details of uh, a cycling plan. How do we design the network? How do we uh, prioritize which corridors we should be designing on. How do we, where do we mandate physical separation between bikes and cars? What does that look like? Where do we, how do we design a junction, an intersection with and without traffic lights? Um, all of these things that the Dutch have been doing for decades, you know, working with the local engineers on contextualizing that, translating it, adapting it to a North American context, uh, and seeing helping them understand what's possible and looking at these challenges from a, a very different perspective. And we have some really incredible success stories. The city of Canmore, Alberta has uh, a fully style network uh, of cycle paths and intersections in red asphalt. It's like uh, you're in the Rocky Mountains, but you're also potentially, you know, in uh, the middle of the Netherlands. And, and so uh, Austin, Texas is another great example, an unlikely candidate, but a city the Dutch Cycling Embassy has been working with uh, for the better part of 10 years and also has a 350-kilometer network of red-tinted Dutch-style uh, cycle paths on its own street. So once we, a city kind of throws away the excuses and they, uh, they commit to this and they understand what's possible, they use the Netherlands as their North Star, as their uh, inspiration, that we can work with them to throughout the process of, of design and implementation and then of uh, engagement with the community to make sure that uh, it doesn't just get on the ground, but people are actually using it to, as part of their daily lives. And uh, yeah, uh, ultimately, you know, ensuring we're getting more people cycling and all the benefits that, that, that comes with that. You wrote about Atlanta as well. And Atlanta has approached this as a long-term plan, not uh not something to be fitted within the the election cycle, but something to be done over decades. And and you wrote about that I think probably close to a decade ago. Um, and and how are, what's the what's the uh, temperature check on Atlanta these days? Yeah, I was actually just in Atlanta before Christmas for a workshop that we did with the city. Um, boy, yeah, they they've got a uh, they do have a long way to go, but they they do have. 
this transformational project called the Beltline, which is uh, the old suburban railway that used to uh, circumnavigate the entire city, uh, has been converted to or is in the process of being converted to a uh, walking and cycling path with the uh, potential addition of a tramway as well. And it's, uh, well, it's, it's transformed the city. And, and now, you know, it's, it's becoming a focal point in terms of new residential and, and office development shops, restaurants located along this Beltline. Just shows, you know, the late demand for car-free spaces in even, you know, the, the most sprawling and, and car-dependent cities like Atlanta. But um, as you've indicated, you know, it, that doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen without long-term political commitment. Uh, and it's something that they, they did when we wrote about uh, their plans uh, all those years ago. And, and uh, interestingly, uh, Atlanta, uh, because it is so so big and so sprawling, uh, it didn't just write a cycling plan. It, for them, it was always about combining cycling with public transport using uh, the Netherlands as a model, if you will. Uh, the Netherlands here, they allow or enable cycling to the train station. Uh, in Atlanta, the focus was uh, allowing cycling to the bus and the tram and the uh, light rail lines um, to feed more passengers in the public transportation system and allow for that car-free travel over uh, longer and longer distances. And so these two modes working synergistically, Atlanta recognized that all those years ago, and uh, and they're, they're starting to design infrastructure parking and, and bike-sharing systems that allow for that bike-transit uh, combination. This podcast is brought to you by Bolden Networks unlocking the power of an interconnected future. We're delivering the advanced shared network infrastructures needed for a smart, inclusive, and sustainable future. From interconnected transit to venues, enterprises to smart cities, we're creating new possibilities in the way people live, work, and play. Find out more, visit boldin.com. I'm, I'm glad you went there because we haven't, we've, we've treated that too lightly to this point because in your writings, uh, that's that's a central point to to cycling. Uh, like I mentioned before, the Dutch people don't consider themselves cyclists. They it's a it's a tool, like you said, and so many trips are taken bike, transit, bike, to, and it's so successful to the point where I think one of your biggest problems over there is getting parking, adequate numbers of spaces for the bicycles. Um, so that that's a a good problem to have, as they say, but um, where where perhaps here the transit isn't up to speed, I guess that just really underscores that this is a long-term project. It's not just about improving cycling, it's about improving transit in general. I think you said that 15% um, of jobs in New York City, was it Manhattan or New York? are accessible within one hour by transit, but 75% within one hour by car, which really underscores the problem. This is not a cycling issue. It's not something that's going to be resolved by cycling. It has to be done in conjunction with good transit too. Exactly. Yeah. And and I think, uh, especially now in the post-pandemic world where public transport agencies are perhaps managing decline, uh, we have to look at new strategies to hopefully boost ridership and revenues and, and give them new opportunities to 
reverse that decline and 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 hopefully expand their coverage and and services um, out of the real kind of dense urban areas. And uh, we would argue quite uh, comprehensively, I think that that cycling is one of those strategies that public transportation agencies can use uh, to boost their ridership to give more passengers access to their system. But it does require a bigger picture thinking than beyond the turnstile. And, and this is unfortunately the siloed world that we live in. Is a lot of these transit agencies just think their job begins and ends at the turnstile. Uh, and they don't really have to worry about door to door how their passengers arrive at, arrive at the stop or station or get to their final destination. And this is the revolutionary thing that uh, Dutch Railways did was to start thinking of themselves as a door-to-door service. Uh, they provide this, uh, well, first off, they work with the active travel planners on creating cycling networks that feed into the stops and stations. Uh, they provide this always free, secure, uh, and sheltered from the weather, uh, bike parking at the train stations, hundreds of thousands of bike parking spaces across the country uh, that are within a short walk of the platform. Uh, and then when you catch your train to your final destination, I mean, I do this uh, twice a week, three times a week to my office in Utrecht from my house in Delft. Uh, you can borrow a rental bike, the tap of the same public transport card uh, for the last mile getting you to your your final destination, wherever it, it happens to be. So making that journey as seamless as possible, we are more train riders. Uh, and the research has shown this, the Dutch railways have looked into this, you know, they, they don't invest in these facilities out of the kindness of their heart. They're doing it because it gets them more money at the ticket office. Um, we get more passengers on the public transport system, but we also get more cyclists on the cycle paths. So the two modes kind of feed into each other uh, synergistically. And, and this is what we would argue a lot of cities and, and regions and, and countries should be doing uh, to provide that alternative to the car because the car, the bike in and of itself is only going to get you so far in terms of distance. The public transport is only going to get you so far in terms of convenience, in terms of picking you up at your origin or, or getting you to your destination. But the two modes, uh, when, when combined, uh, can get you yeah, tens, if not hundreds of kilometers uh, without ever once having to step foot inside an automobile and all of the uh, benefits uh, uh, that come with, uh, not the least of which is le- less traffic on the motorways, which means we don't have to expand uh, and add uh, additional lanes at the cost of billions and billions of dollars. You can hop on your bike. You've got the bike beside you. You can hop on the bike to go for lunch and don't have to you can do it safely. You don't even have to wear a helmet and mess up your hair for those of us still with hair. So, um, but, uh, it's, it's very civilized. That's, um, one thing I, this is just a curiosity now, but I've been to the Netherlands. I've seen those sprawling bike parking lots. I have to believe you, you, you tap to rent a bicycle, but I have to believe some people prefer their own bike and probably have a bike stashed in the lots at either end of their trip. And, and, and there's got to be a lot of bicycles that are just orphaned. <laughs> that yeah, are just yeah. rotting on the, on, the, on the locks for years. Is there, have they started to try and figure out how to manage that? Is there, you know, I, I, I see technology fitting in here somewhere, but uh, 
So they must be turning their attention to that as they're running out of space. No, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. And this is actually the expression that uh, the Dutch use. It's uh, base feats or orphan bicycles. Uh, and they estimate that in some of these bike parking facilities, it's 20 to 30% of the bikes there have been abandoned by their, their owners. Um, so there has been a huge effort and investment in trying to create that turnover to free up spaces and to get, uh, well, to discourage people from if not abandoning their bikes, leaving them there for days or weeks at a time for the off chance that they may have a meeting in that city. Uh, and so they, a lot of these bike parkings now have quite complicated um, optical sensors, either in the, uh, well, a sensor in the ceiling or one in the bike rack themselves uh, that feed into a centralized system that the facility manager can see exactly how long each bike has been parked for how many free spaces are available in each uh, row in the facility. Uh, and they can, uh, most of these facilities have uh, a maximum time. It's Here in Delft, it's 14 days that you can leave your bike at any given time. And if you don't clear it out there in 14 days, you'll get a warning, a tag on your handlebars. And then uh, two or three days later, they come through with a truck to empty out the, the uh, orphan bikes. So uh, there is now quite a, a complex system uh, to try and create that turnover. And the other thing that a lot of these newer bike parking facilities have introduced is uh, they are generally free, but um, in the bigger ones in Utrecht and Amsterdam now, only the first 24 hours is free. So you have to tap your card when you enter and exit the facility. And as long as you tap out within 24 hours, you don't get charged anything. But if you do uh, stay there a bit longer than you're charged about one euro per 24 hours uh, on top of that. So these are all little means, yeah, to try and stimulate that turnover. And this is a, a very Dutch problem, but it is, you know, you've got 10,500 bike parking spaces at Utrecht Central Station that you've built for 30 million euros. It's now currently probably at about 80% capacity. It's projected to be at 100% by 2030. Uh, how we can create that turnover, create as much free spaces as possible, uh, while the Dutch try to figure out where to find the money in the space for the next 10,000 spaces, which is uh, an inevitable uh, uh, outcome of this system. It's not unlike a, a car-based transportation system. You know, it's still, uh, we're inducing demand through good infrastructure, through uh, investments in sustainable mobility, but it does create these capacity problems and and requires uh, additional investment in terms of creating new parking and make sure, making sure that they're staffed and maintained and, uh, and operated in a, a high-quality way so that they're not, um, well, they're still maintaining the same level of service for the passenger. And I suppose that, that technology, uh, you know, being able to track the duration a bike is locked up, that sounds like it's all indoor based and so on but imagine that technology will roll out to the 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 bike multi-tiered parking lot outside amsterdam central for example that's an outdoor spot but that that's that's the bike city as far as i'm concerned a sea of bicycles the interesting thing about that uh structure the Pete's feet flat is uh it's actually been emptied out in about a year ago oh really uh and amsterdam amsterdam central has built a brand new underground bike parking facility which is actually underneath the harbor I, i've seen it's amazing yeah i i didn't realize it replaced the the outdoor ranch uh, uh 
infrastructure. That was the uh, the intention. So they've they've emptied it out completely. It's now sitting there empty, and they're the city, the municipality is trying to figure out what to do with it. They may donate it to another city, um, but with the addition of this underwater bike parking, uh, Amsterdam Central now has, in theory, enough uh, enough bike parking to take the bikes off of street level to declutter the public space and and. Uh, yeah, and it does provide a, a seamless connection for, through a tunnel from the underwater bike parking to the uh, Amsterdam Central Station itself uh, and then up onto the platform. That tap-in-out system seems really good for bike, not only you know uh, rotating the bicycles and, and keeping them unorphaned, so to speak, but, uh, but uh, just for safety as well and, and less likelihood of theft, I would imagine. Um, are there any other technological innovations? Since we're a technical company, we'd like to hear about new tech. Um, is innovation happening elsewhere that uh, you benefit from technology that comes to mind? Yeah, the uh, you've already mentioned the the dynamic way that Dutch cities use traffic lights, but I think it's it's still even now an emerging field uh, and a, a, an interesting area of way the way that cities can actually talk the talk and, and prioritize the means of traffic that it would like. And so uh, a lot of Dutch cities now, including Utrecht, uh, they have sensors at the uh, intersections where they're uh, sensing when a, a pack of cyclists or a peloton of cyclists is approaching and they can hold the green light for longer uh, to ensure that all of those cyclists get through uh, their journey. So there's, yeah, the use of technology that hopefully uh, stimulate uh, cycling and and uh, prevent people from standing at a traffic light uh, for longer than they need to. They've even started doing uh, weather-based technology. So the city of Rotterdam has done a couple of intersections where they've installed rain sensors. Uh, and on days when the uh, precipitation level is, uh, is noticeable, they do hold the green light a little bit longer for people on foot or bicycle because they obviously don't have the, the shelter of a nice, warm, dry automobile. So, yeah, there are interesting, interesting little touches that we can, we can do. And I think the bigger point being that um, there is a lot of movement and momentum around this idea of smart cities uh, and utilizing technology uh, to make cities more intelligent, more efficient, and respond to people's needs. But if we're just... Uh, concrete uh, or or solidifying the status the card and status quo then how smart really are our cities uh or should we be looking at trying to stimulate other uh yeah more space efficient healthy uh, and active modes of transportation is anything uh, clever going on in uh, anti-theft the dutch must be very protective of their bicycles yeah no, and and uh, I mean you've already mentioned the uh, how the bike parking facilities themselves are quite secure in terms of tap in tap out or cameras or having uh, well a lot of them now are supervised with with guards at the at the front gate to kind of discourage that that theft. But um, yeah, it, it certainly as as bicycles get more expensive with the uh, introduction of the electric bike and the cargo bike. Uh, the rusty old uh, Dutch bicycle uh, that you can replace at a secondhand shop for 80 or 100 euros uh, is becoming less and less common. And so uh, bike thieves are enjoying kind of a bit of a windfall in terms of uh, 
getting their hands on those more expensive bikes. And, and from what I understand, you know, it's, it's reached the point where organized crime is getting involved and, uh, and, uh, uh, yeah, a lot of these, uh, expensive bikes end up on a, on a trailer tractor to Eastern Europe, uh, within a short period of time. But we do now have uh, GPS based technology, which, um, is being introduced as a, a standard on some bicycle models. Uh, that you can track with a mobile application. Um, a lot of uh, insurers now, so you can obviously insure your bike through your contents insurance or your property insurance. They require the addition or usage of this uh, GPS chip that you can drop in your bike frame or your saddle. Uh, and they have a really high recovery rate. It's amazing. Uh, uh, I saw one article that says uh, the AN, ANVB, which is kind of the, the equivalent of the Canadian Automobile Association here in the Netherlands, um, they have an 80% recovery rate when it comes to stolen bicycles because they have this uh, this GPS uh, technology that you can trace exactly where the bikes ended up and uh, get the police involved. So we're not necessarily going to prevent all bike theft, but um, there are certainly things that we can do to discourage it. Uh, and the yeah the addition of these kind of mobile applications, the tracking technologies, even bicycle alarms that sound, you know, a loud noise when somebody's uh, tinkering with your your bicycle. These are hopefully all means to uh, uh, reduce the rate of bicycle theft because it is uh, still a huge problem that oftentimes the police don't want to get involved in because it's such a petty amount, a small amount of. Uh, of property in comparison to the other crimes that they're dealing with. There's a joke about that in Ted Lasso, right? Like the episode where they're in Amsterdam and like they can just like buy and sell a bike from some random bloke at, at will effectively. So Yeah, which is, you know, why most Dutch people just accept bike theft as a way of life. And, you know, it's happened to us twice already in five years. Uh, when it's your turn, it's your turn and your bike goes missing and you, you just have to go get another one. Um, but it's not the, the, you know, it's not the case everywhere and, and in other parts of the world where your bicycle is your baby or, uh, you know, is an investment, uh, the threat of theft is real and, and maybe prevents you from riding that bike to certain parts of the city if you have to leave it on uh, the sidewalk or tied to a lamppost or a parking meter. Uh, the lack of parking facilities and threat of bike parking actually affects people's travel patterns and their their choices and uh, we don't have a solution for it yet, but but uh, there's a lot of yeah innovative companies that are trying to provide tools to help battle that uh, that problem. It's interesting that the bike share thing has. I, I have a membership to the Toronto Bike Share because if I want to ride downtown to a meeting, I'd often rather ride the bike than take tra- take transit. But I wouldn't ride my own bike and leave it outside, and it's not even a particularly nice bike. But I just wouldn't feel confident that it's still going to be there an hour later. Whereas I feel like if you're in the Netherlands, you see people with, um, you probably don't leave your $4,000 van Moof outside, um, but you will leave your, your what's the one with the blue tires? That the, the Swap Fiat? Yeah, Swap Beats. There's something about that where it's like, okay, it's not the nicest bike, but you don't really care. And there's so many of them. It's almost like so ubiquitous, you wouldn't nick it. I We always said that the best bike lock is no lock at all. You just take your bike with you. We, I used to work in a bike shop and we used to have competitions to see how much uh, you could strip off the bike. Even if the frame was perfectly locked, you can still get some very expensive gear off the bike with the hex wrench and some wire cutters. And, and uh, so 
you know, 30 to 90 seconds and you've got hundreds of euros worth of stuff. Um, but, uh, I, I, so, um, you have swallowed the orange pill. Um, I, I, I wonder, uh, do the Canadian cycling advocate expats hang out? Do you catch up with Jason Slaughter while you're there? Uh, the, uh, producer of not just bikes. He, he's done some very good things that I, I really enjoy uh, and not just enjoy, but, um, appreciate because I've swallowed the orange pill too. I haven't made the move yet, but, uh, I, I, I do believe in the way. Jason and our story aligns, uh, quite well. You know, I think he moved his family to Amsterdam six months before we moved ours to Delft. Uh, and he does such a fantastic job in terms of, uh, telling that story. Well, what began is just a, a YouTube channel to explain to his friends and family why they moved to the Netherlands, uh, has become this global phenomenon with 1.2 million subscribers. The last I checked. Uh, we we bump into Jason from time to time at these kind of uh, mobility events like the International Cargo Bike Festival most recently. And we did work with him on a video uh, upon the release of our second book, Curbing Traffic, uh, on something uh, on the topic of noise pollution. Uh, the video was called uh, Cities Aren't Loud, Cars Are Loud. Um, so, yeah, we've... Uh, we continue to stay in touch, you know, and it's, it's funny that, you know, there's so many, uh, immigrants, expat internationals here in the Netherlands that are sharing the Netherlands story for them. Um, but, uh, perhaps, uh, to bring it full circle, you know, it's, uh, it's part of the reason why, um, the success of the cycling culture here is that everybody who's grown up in it doesn't think of it as worth celebrating or exporting. It does take an outsider to, to understand and recognize that. And uh, so it's not a, it's not, maybe not a coincidence that it's a, a handful of Canadians and Americans that are doing the Dutch's job for them. I think Jason can be a little bit harsh on us from time to time. We're, we're, we're Canadian though. We're just behind on everything. So I, I hope you, you don't turn your back because we need your influence. We need your help to get, uh, you know, to get up to Dutch speed. No, we, uh, we, we had this kind of, um, and I had this conversation when it became time to leave Vancouver was, you know, we felt like we were abandoning the Canadian cycling advocacy community, uh, because we were no longer there to fight the fights, uh, that needed to, but we just, uh, knew in our bones that by coming to the Netherlands uh, through the internationally focused work that we could do here, we could have a much bigger impact, not just in Canada, but in other cities around the world. And uh, and uh, I would like to think that the last five years have, have uh, proved us right. Well, you're in a much better position to be that advocate. So if uh, people who have listened and want to learn more, how do they get a hold of, of Chris at the Dutch Biking Embassy? Yeah, our, our website is uh, DutchCycling.nl. We're on all of the social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, just look up the Dutch Cycling Embassy and uh, you can email me uh, through our website or you can drop me a line on LinkedIn uh, on my personal account. I'm always happy to chat, and, uh, hear what your city's working on and, and hopefully uh, see how we might be able to help. I've got one last question for you, Chris. Play the tourism advocate in the Netherlands here. So people have been to Amsterdam. Some people might have ventured out to Utrecht or Rostam 
or Eindhoven, but what's the best cycling route in the Netherlands? What makes it special for you? Oh boy. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I would agree with you wholeheartedly to get the heck out of Amsterdam if you are coming to the Netherlands. There's so much of this country that is beautiful, it's bikeable, it is worth exploring, uh, and uh, Amsterdam is not representative of the rest of the country. Um, this time last year, my wife Melissa and I took a beautiful uh, ride in Zeeland in the southwest of the country. They have uh, these signature recreational routes that the Dutch national government have uh, developed. Uh, in this case, it's the coastal route, uh, and they have it's uh, 600 kilometers of waterfront uh, separated cycling uh, from. Uh, but you don't have to do the full 600 kilometers by by any means. Uh, we we did uh, we rented a couple of e bikes and did 40 kilometers in a day and, and going through the sand dunes, going yeah along. Uh, they had uh, monuments and memorials to the Second World War. They you know old fishing villages. Uh, it was really a beautiful uh, day and and uh, so yeah, get out into the countryside. It doesn't matter where you uh, where you go, but try and get on a bicycle and, and experience all that this country has to offer. You mentioned Canmore earlier and, and in the arguments about we could never do that here because weather, climate, whatever. Uh, given the choice between Canmore and anywhere in the Netherlands, I would always choose the Netherlands because I think the entire country has an elevation change of about 40 meters. I don't want to go cycling in the mountains <laughs> of Canmore. I want to go on the flat coastal regions of the Netherlands. That's more suited to me. Anyway, I digress. Thank you very much for your time, Chris. Really appreciate talking with you today. And uh, I, I feel like we've touched the tip of the iceberg. But uh, thank you for your, your work, your advocacy, and uh, all the best. No, thanks for having me. And this is the thing. I, we've talked for over an hour, and I feel like we could have gone for another five or six. So uh, maybe we can, we can pick this up another day. But I really appreciate the conversation and the questions. And it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Connected Commute podcast from Bolden Networks. Follow or subscribe on the platform of your choice to stay connected and keep up to date with the latest innovations at bolden.com.